Broadcasting from the banks of the Mekong River in Luang Prabang, this is Radio Okpap Thok, the podcast that crisscrosses the globe, meeting pioneers in the world of folk art, change makers in travel and tourism, and innovators in remote communities. Join us as we delve into the minds of these custodians of culture. This podcast is brought to you by Okpap Thok, an artisan textile company founded by women, run by women, for the women of Laos. I'm Joanna Smith. And I'm Rachna Sachison. If you're looking for inspiration and ideas of where to travel, you've come to the right place. All aboard, let's go. Sabaidi, everyone. This is Rachna, and I'm really excited to have everybody on the podcast today. Joe is here with me. Today, we're speaking with Shoshana Stewart, the CEO of Turquoise Mountain. Shoshana started her journey with Turquoise Mountain in 2006, just as it was beginning its task of rebuilding the heritage buildings in Kabul. Today, 15 years later, she's leading the foundation's work in Afghanistan, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. So as we all know, this podcast is about roads less traveled, about pioneers, changemakers, innovators, and trailblazers. And while we see Shoshana as all of these things, the part that really interests us is the roads less traveled. Both Shoshana and Turquoise Mountain took unconventional paths. Rules were broken. There was no strategic planning, but there was plenty of ingenuity and imagination. Shoshana went from studying astrophysics to rebuilding the streets of Kabul, literally. Turquoise Mountain took big risks. It focuses on a single community. It nurtures relationships. And rather than scaffolding more modern infrastructure or big tech, Turquoise Mountain focuses on crafts, the humble and often underestimated backbone of culture. Joe, how about you? What do you want to say? Yes, this week's guest is all of the things that I love about doing this podcast. I'm especially excited to hear about the pioneering path that Turquoise Mountain has taken in providing livelihoods and so much more to the women, men and children in some of the most challenging places on earth. But none of this could have been achieved if it wasn't for the visionary leadership of Shoshana Stewart. So without further ado, welcome Shoshana to Radio or Pop Talk. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So um, Shoshana, I was watching your TEDx talk, which is brilliant, by the way. And one of the things that struck me was your seemingly unconventional statement that the secret to development is in energy, beauty, and pride. So can you tell me a little bit more what you meant by that? Absolutely. Um, so I suppose those aren't the, the three answers that, that much of development theory uh, would give. So, so they are sort of purposely unconventional just because it isn't quite as, nothing is as systematic as you'd think it were it is of course and so what what it feels like is those things i suppose that at the end of the day it's incredibly important that we have a way to feed ourselves and our family that we have an income but you can have an income through many different things and how different it is to go to work every day and do something that makes you feel reminds you that you uh, come from a special heritage something that that matters something that matters to the world and so that sense of pride in one's own culture, be that of the, your ethnicity, your nation, um, is something that is great and something that the world should cherish. So 
jobs in traditional craft, in heritage buildings, in craft and heritage and culture and heritage uh, bring that sense of pride. And so I think that that's almost the central one of those three. I couldn't agree more. I think like encouraging a sense of cultural pride must be at the core of all successful um, development projects. When I, when I heard you say that in your TED talk, that really resonated with me. I also think that there's something, um, there's something unfortunately slightly surprising about it, which is that the, the act of you know, giving money to another country, it basically it's, it is inherently a little bit condescending. And we obviously, uh, it's a natural issue and it's something we all have to deal with. But this kind of development actually says rather than uh, you're a poor country with no security and you treat your women badly. This is in the case of Afghanistan where we started. This is saying, Afghanistan, you have an extraordinary heritage and something that the world should love. Uh, and so we're going to preserve it. We need to preserve it. And it's a way that you can bring incomes uh, back to your communities. But it, it isn't the way that quite a lot of development feels. And I think that's why I enjoy it. So let's go back to when you first arrived in Kabul, Shoshana. A protracted war had just come to an end. The Afghans who had left were slowly coming back. The city was strewn with rubble, garbage, stray dogs, peacocks. Uh, women were slowly being seen on the streets again. Um, still a bit of an uneasy time, and the fate of the country was still a bit of a toss-up. But you decided to come to Kabul. What were you thinking when the door hatch of the plane opened? What was going through your mind? Oh, who knows? <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> Uh, no, I basically, I wanted to go on an adventure. Um, and so getting off the plane, I, I, I felt as one does going on an adventure, um, which is, you know, equal parts of uh, what am I going to see on the other side of the door? And, uh, and I'm a little bit nervous. But off we went and uh, it was it was quite hot and dry and a little bit windy. I, I definitely remember that. You know, you wander through this at that point partially rebuilt air airport infrastructure, but you got the sense of a lot of chaotic organization. Things were not particularly well put together, but incredible politeness. I mean, it's something that you can't get past the moment you encounter anyone in Kabul is that there's just extreme politeness of everyone looking at you and greeting you, um, which is, is something I've always loved about it. So it's 2006 and Shoshana arrives in Kabul to volunteer with a newly formed organization. Turquoise Mountain, as this organization is called, was founded by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, to revive historic areas and traditional crafts in Kabul. The once glorious capital city had played an important role in world history, architecture and crafts since antiquity. To get things going, Prince Charles dispatched Rory Stewart, a British diplomat, politician, author, and explorer to Afghanistan. Rory had just completed a solo trek on foot that lasted more than 18 months and took him through Iran, Pakistan, and the Himalayas of India and Nepal. The walk also included a 36-day trek across Afghanistan. Rory typically walked 20 to 25 miles a day and stayed in village houses every night. When Rory arrived in Kabul to set up Turquoise Mountain, he already knew a thing or two about the country's repository of wonderful historic buildings 
When Shoshana arrived in Kabul, her first stop was to an old gated compound. Entering the gates, she saw two pairs of legs dangling off an old brick wall. The first belonged to an Afghan mason who was wearing loose shalwar kameez and a glorious black turban. The other was Rory, a Scot properly dressed in brogues. It's safe to say that Rory and Shoshana hit it off. The two later married. But that's another story altogether. Let's continue with the story of Shoshana's first few days in Kabul. The place I arrived uh, was this 19th century royal mud fort on the outskirts of Kabul, which is a, a, a huge building that we had taken over. I say we, I had just joined it, but the new we had taken over to restore and, and begin running our craft training in. So I drive up to this thing and the, you know, these huge wooden gates opened and the car was brought in and there's this whole world inside. And this is, what's true that building is true of all um, Afghan buildings really, which is that they have a, a very, very blank mud exterior wall, a boundary wall that protects, keeps out dangerous things, uh, keeps privacy, but inside, you know, it's one of the most fertile places I've ever been. You have these extraordinary gardens, flowers. So um, we had a gardener named uh, Said Bokhon. He'd already trained morning glories up the sides of the mud walls. And there were fruit trees and there were these two dogs that had been adopted, Palawan and Nehru, and there were two peacocks. Mm -hmm. It was day one, I get up and I get a tour around what we're doing on our other site, which is the future site. And it's, it's really everything that we're aiming for, which is in the old city of Kabul. And the old city was this uh, extraordinary place of historic buildings, the traditional silver bazaar. And it was right smack in the middle of the city, right on the banks of the Kabul River and right across the street from a lot of government ministries and uh, the main roundabout in the city. But when we began, it was six feet deep in garbage. Um, at that point, decades and decades of war meant uh, there was no real functioning central government. So nobody was uh, re repairing buildings. Nobody was putting in infrastructure. Nobody was cleaning the streets. And you essentially had accumulation of destroyed buildings there. So you walk down the streets and down the, the, the historic street pattern, which is very winding uh, around these blank mud walls. And then you open one of the doors, you're invited in, and there's a family living in there. And again, they have you know, a little plot of land inside. Um, but in many cases, what it was is, is their house was sort of half destroyed and they were living in the bit that wasn't destroyed. So. Uh, Rory had already uh, basically employed everybody he could in the community and, and, and more. We need more than that, actually, um, to just start clearing the garbage. That was just the first step. Um, it gave us a chance to get to know everyone, too, obviously, because uh, nearly everyone had a job. Um, but essentially, with these little alleys, you, you couldn't do it with big machines. So we had pickaxes and shovels and wheelbarrows just carting out what would eventually be 30,000 cubic meters of garbage out of the old city streets. And there we began. Wow, wow, wow. I'm just thinking, like you said when you left the States, that you were essentially looking for adventure. And it certainly sounds like, like you found one. 
What Shoshana just described was the clearing of the Great Sarai, a former merchant compound in Muradkani, a historic market and commercial area on the banks of the Kabul River. Muradkani dates back to the early 18th century when the Afghan king Ahmad Shah Durrani granted the land to members of his court. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Muradkani was a flourishing bazaar and trading hub and its residents built houses with intricately carved wood and plaster decorations. One of the most spectacular was the merchant home known as the Great Sarai. Once Shoshana, Rory, and the team cleared the rubble, they discovered beautifully carved cedar wood and original sliding windows. The Sarai compound is now home to the Turquoise Mountain Institute, where the organization runs its crafts training, its clinic, and school. Now, how did Turquoise Mountains aim to revive historic areas and bring about traditional crafts and jobs come together? So then the way they, they came together, I suppose, is that we started in the old city, and that's everybody with wheelbarrows and shovels, and then beginning to re restore the buildings. But simultaneous to that was the craft industry, and that was about essentially finding the masters. I mean, the, the, the essential element in the craft industry in any place is about mastery. It's about the people who hold those traditions. Uh, it's about what they know and what they can pass on, but it's also about the way they learned it and their stories and their particular ways of doing it. Um, it's a very personal thing, I think. So in Afghanistan, people hadn't been practicing for decades. So what we found was for example, Abdul Hadi. And Hadi was in his mid-70s, but he was uh, at one point the great lattice woodworker of Afghanistan. He made this extraordinary woodwork uh, that's put together with individual joints. And, you know, he worked for the king. He was a famous man. But but when we met him, he he hadn't produced in 15 years. He had no, no students to whom he could pass on his skills. He had no markets. And so he was selling fruit in the bazaar. Rory found his way to Abdul Hadi by asking people and then employed him and then asked him to tell, him where, tell us where all of his friends were, who he used to teach with. So we basically reconstituted uh, an old technical school, which had all of these woodwork masters in particular, found jewelry masters, found ceramicists. Um, so we pulled all these guys out of retirement and, and just put students in a classroom with them. And, but there was no curriculum. It was some guys in a classroom with some other younger men and women who were learning. But then, I mean, that was the real joy of the first uh, six months or so, was just trying to sit down with all of the ustads, the masters, trying to extract what the heck a curriculum would look like. Because of course, you, I would say, okay, what's the first step? And, I would get a wonderful answer, but one that I couldn't really digest of, you know, it's very important that the student watches the master. It's, it's very important that they're formally accepted into, into, this, um, into this relationship of master and apprentice. Um, and we get out amazing stories about how that ritual often happened, the exchange of a Quran for sweets. Um, you know, but but uh, that didn't tell me at all whether we should learn joinery or planing of wood first or whatever else. So what you said that really struck me was the when you found the master artisans and you're trying to create this curriculum. And it made me think of uh, that. I don't know if you've read the Orhan Pamuk book about um, miniature apprenticeship. It's called Red, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, it's I, I, or something like that. Frustratingly, I've read about half of it, <laughs> but many years ago, many years ago. 
Yeah, so the, I mean, you know, in it, it's like, yeah, the guy who's apprenticing, I mean, he spends like, not the first few weeks or, or months, like the first few years, just like watching. And then he, then, you know, the next step up is like bringing tea, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's a long process. Like these apprenticeships um, are a long time in developing. And, and then the other aspect is that they're usually apprenticeships between men. But in, in this situation, you really brought in women, you know, women to learn calligraphy, to learn jewelry making, to learn wood carving, things that were traditionally done by men. So how did that work? Yes. Uh, Orhan Pamuk's description of the apprenticeship is absolutely ours, too. I mean, the conversations with the tile master, Amin Shah, went exactly like that, because the answer to the question, what do you do in year one, is that, well, for the first four years, I was allowed to peer through the window at my master. And then I was invited in, and the next year I could sweep the floors. You know, it was absolutely the longest period of watching and initiation, et cetera. So that's absolutely right. right. And it definitely didn't involve women. Um, but in the Istalifi pottery tradition, men do all of the clay work. They begin to throw pots from the age of very, very young. Um, but the women do all the decoration. And so they, they do this wonderful um, loose graffito style. But with the exception of that, basically there weren't really women involved. And so um, we opened it up to everyone and we definitely got women applicants and we definitely encouraged women applicants. We weren't looking to just have a quota of women. We wanted to do things that would, uh, that would last for people. And this wasn't about people having a, a nice three-year training journey and then going home and doing nothing or doing something else. This was a significant investment. and They needed to want to do this for their lives and make a career out of it. And so for women, that was about in the entry process, having a conversation with that woman and with her family saying, right, do you really want to do this? Because out the other side of this, you might run a business or you're certainly going to work in a business. You know, you can work partially from home. That's an option, but you're going to interact with men. You're going to have a professional life. So is this, is this what you're uh, excited about doing? And so um, the people who said yes to that are the people who we would then take on. But then, um, Oh, it's about lots of little things and big things, I suppose. Little things that, you know, you don't put a woman and a man next to each other on a bench. You have sort of separate the classroom into two sides and give people their personal space. But also about figuring out the specific ways that women needed to be supported in setting up businesses. Um, you know, making sure that there was this, an incubation space for people to set up businesses, but that it was safe and that it was a place that uh, their community and their family would think was respectable. So we needed to keep that close to home so that we could vouch for the place that the, these women were, um, were setting up in. So uh, all those things and helping them register with the Ministry of Economy and get, um, you know, get export licenses and all those sorts of things. So I, I suppose it's about trying to figure out how to support uh, a woman as a student and then as an entrepreneur in all the different ways that it is difficult to do so as an African woman. Shoshana, I have a question. There's this kind of for me and for some of the listeners that may not know um, turquoise mountain um, craft so well, but maybe you could just describe exactly which type of crafts turquoise mountain um, works works with or produces. What a very good <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, 
So Turquoise Mountain works in basically any craft that needs um, preserving in Afghanistan, but the ones that we chose in the beginning were the ones in which we found masters. So woodwork, jewelry, ceramics, and calligraphy and miniature painting. And then now we work uh, in carpets, and carpets is hugely important to the Afghan economy. We didn't start in carpets because it wasn't a tradition that seemed like it needed saving. And there are almost a million weavers across Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is known uh, as an uh, incredible place for hand-woven carpets and has been forever. Industries change, of course, and Afghanistan has an opportunity now because basically Turkey produces no handmade carpets anymore. They have essentially developed out of it. People don't want to weave anymore. So India is, is beginning to stop producing. Uh, they're going that way. Iran basically isn't sanctions otherwise, but they're not sending to the U.S. Um, so it means that India and Nepal uh, are producing for the handmade carpet industry, but there is a glaring gap. And so either Afghanistan will pivot and adjust and improve to be able to source for the future handmade carpet industry, or it will be gone in a matter of decades. Because the future industry is about making what the client wants. And what I mean by that is that whether it's traditional or contemporary, they want to say, this is what my customer wants. These are the colors. These are the patterns. This is the size. This is the finish. We're going to work with the carpet producers to make that, sample it, and then repeat it. So again, whether it's traditional or contemporary, you need to be able to work to those designs and you need to be able to cut, wash, and finish um, to those standards. And it needs to be fair trade. Afghanistan right now doesn't do that final step. They, make, they weave the carpets that they think they should weave. Um, and then they are mostly exported to Pakistan where they are cut, washed, and finished. But Afghanistan, in order to, to source for the future market, needs both to be able to cut, wash, and finish beautifully in the country, which we're doing now, which it just needs to be done on a much larger scale, but also it's that actually making what people are asking for, not just making what you want and seeing what people will buy, because that's just not not the way it's going. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so everyone who's doing that will struggle. Totally. Exactly. I mean, I think like you're starting to touch upon something that – you know, that's the next step, right? So you've been in Afghanistan, you've identified the master craftsman, now you've set up the institute, um, there's a transferring of skills, um, you're starting to make product. And I understand at the beginning, it wasn't necessarily the dream product, or, you know, like it was a, there was a big learning curve, right, to get the quality of the product up to market demand. And then you have to find the market. So who was the market? We learned very early on as we were training people that, um, and then beginning to try to sell things, that it takes a very long time to make handcrafted products, right? And so the labor wages in any particular product are fairly high because it takes a long time. And therefore, it's not going to be cheap. Afghanistan is not a low-cost producer, actually. It was never going to win a race to the bottom. And we wouldn't want that anyway, but that was not, we were not there. And so um, these needed to be at a, a higher price point. And so if you're going to do that, they absolutely need to be at a high standard of design, of quality, and the price point would fit that. We 
found our way toward a sort of global ethical sustainable goods market that actually does fit that actually wants exactly what we're making we just have to be good enough for it it wants you know it's 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 my my mom buying fair trade coffee it's uh it's it's any of us uh buying a product uh whose value chain we feel good about and people are increasingly looking at that and this industry is growing every year it's grown throughout the recent recessions and so it it really is a huge part of the future industry this industry wants high standard of design it wants transparency in the supply chain and it wants authenticity in other words it wants to know where this thing was made it wants to know about the person who made it and this industry and these buyers also are interested in specificity and difference which i love so if we think about for example a textile tradition it actually isn't as excited about a generic uh afghan look or even a generic islamic art look for example it actually loves the detail about how this particular motif comes from the mountains of bamian in the central highlands of afghanistan and wants to know uh the name of the person who made it this is sima and this is where she lives and this is how she learned her tradition so this was the market that we eventually found but in order to, in order to be able to bring products to that market you got to get a lot of steps right in between because first of all you need to meet the people who are buying right so that can be the end customer but actually we found that that more it's uh, designers and buyers it's it, one of the things i also learned early on is that uh you can't you can't have the market be the world and you're going to figure out the market trends in the world every year i mean it's just ridiculous somebody else needs to figure that out and so if i'm going to sell into new york i need to partner with a new york designer or retailer who knows what her customer wants and knows that she wants to use a particular blue in a particular season and knows that her best price point for a bracelet is $110 and so if we work with her she's in going to an example pippa small has been an extraordinary part of our jewelry lives she's basically made all of our 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 success in jewelry in afghanistan particularly then in myanmar um and now in jordan uh jordan syria and pippa knows exactly what her customers want in london and in la and every year she comes out to our projects works with the artisans and says right we're going to design something that is very particularly of afghanistan it will use the motifs that she sees around her and she will just co-design it with uh afghan artisans and and eventually designers who were training and she mentors but ultimately we've got to match it to what she knows she can sell and then she orders yeah yes yeah. so that's enough product right um but then there are steps all the way down the line about you know mercury gets into your metal and you got to get uh metal testing guns to figure out what the purity of the metals are and and uh you have to fireproof and rub test all your textiles and all the great industry standards. No no, I think you're definitely right. And you know, one of the things that strikes me is like these partnerships that you've been able to form like with Pippa Small and Kate Spade and you work with other, you know, like luxury brands. And so yes, these collaborations that Turquoise Mountain has been able to to attract 
how how have you gone about doing that yes the collaborations are totally central and the way you meet people is one thing but i think the way that you keep them is probably more important and difficult and it's nearly impossible for for artisans at home to do honestly um so i mean the answer is basically i meet people and then my creative director talia kennedy who really built our institute in Afghanistan and, and then built our project in Saudi Arabia. Um, it, we meet people, but then we show them what we have, right? So we have PDFs full of everyone's products. But a, a designer or a buyer who want, who's interested in the story and interested in the product might take a chance on you once, right? But they can't ruin their business because your products don't show up or they show up in the wrong color or whatever else. So they'll take a chance on you once, but they'll do it in a small way, right? They'll order a few little things as samples and try you out. The key to getting repeat orders, which is where you get the volume, you get the security, is that you have to make good on that. And you have to be not almost as, you have to be just as reliable as their other providers or they're gonna go back to their other providers. And you maybe even need to be better because they know that Afghanistan is insecure. And so they know they're taking a risk continuing to buy from Afghanistan. So you need to reassure them, not in words, but in, in action, that you, your stuff shows up on time and it's exactly what they ordered. And whenever you uh, do make a mistake, that you deal with it professionally. So. The whole kind of order management part of it and production management, et cetera, is incredibly important. And so that, I mean, that's what, what we do and what we need to keep doing is that even when artisans really are operating at an incredibly high standard of quality, of timing, and are, are very working very professionally, et cetera, we've got to deal with all of the other things that happen, you know, when DHL just loses your shipment, which happens yeah. an annoying amount of times, um, or um, all the other things, that, all the other gaps. I mean, you know, financing is a really big issue in the handmade value chain. Um, buyers do not want to pay in advance and their businesses are not built on that model. That's a, that's a, that's a really big cash draw for them. And artisans can't be paid in arrears. They need to buy materials. They're not sitting on a huge lump yeah, of yeah, cash yeah, yeah. to start. That is a gap. And we're trying to work on it, as others are. But, you know, we need to, to provide that cash flow by paying the artisans up front and then getting paid later. So we provide that. Um, so there are a number of steps in the value chain that, that seem to need that support. But the end result, as we started with, is that we can get artisan products to really high-end markets and at volume, but you just got to make good on that relationship. You know, um, I'm, I'm curious for two things. One is like at the beginning, you painted a very beautiful picture of Afghanistan. So I understand it's a beautiful country. You know, it has like this unbelievable historic um, value and you know this heritage has been destroyed um, do people come and visit Afghanistan as tourists <laughs> they were a little bit um, right now no I mean I'm headed there on Sunday um, but I know that there are no tourists on the airplane flying in with me um, security is very very bad there right now um, 
but tourists will come at some point and um and you know afghans go to different parts in their own country um one place in particular where we're now beginning to work a lot is in Bamiyan in in this in this central mountainous region of Afghanistan and you know it, when you fly into Bamiyan which you can only do domestically so you fly in on a sort of nine seater um and you just it's just brown jagged spectacular mountains everywhere around wow. you i mean the most spectacular landscape and then you zoom around one side and you come into a valley into the Bamiyan Valley and you see as you land these huge holes in the mountainside and they are the place where the the buddhas were destroyed by the taliban so you have these these buddha shaped niches um and you land and then Bamiyan is actually relatively secure um and Bamiyan will probably be the most important place in Afghanistan for international tourism uh when when that's possible um you know it is an important buddhist site and it is a place where afghans go um they go to mazar sharif in the north and and other places for nowruz for the persian new year coming up so afghans go around the country and it's incredibly important to save um to save these historic buildings and these monuments and these landscapes um for the world for afghans to see and eventually for international tourists. is there a is there a domestic market for the handicrafts being produced by turquoise mountain yes no maybe okay. um <laughs> afghanistan is a very very poor country and so people are not really buying decorative items right, right now okay having said that um one of the wonderful things has been watching the sort of elite of Afghanistan begin to buy really beautiful wood half the government ministries now uh, all the, the ministers offices are fitted out with um with beautiful carved chairs and jolly lattice tables and panels so i do it has been wonderful to make the really beautiful stuff sell it internationally and then have afghans lay serious claim to it and say that is ours and then replicate it in academic circles turquoise mountains approach would be called community based integrated development project how does this jargon play out on the ground a cornerstone of turquoise mountains approach is building relationships this means building trust addressing needs identified by the community listening The last one is particularly critical. It's about listening to those who are vocal and those who for any number of reasons are reluctant to speak. Opening a clinic and a primary school weren't on the initial agenda, but working side by side with the residents of Murad Khani, it became clear that a clinic and a school were needed, both for the service they provided and as a place where mothers and children could share their perspectives and experiences. <laughs> when we when we asked what else do you need what can we help with etc people asked for a uh, literacy class actually for kids and adults and they asked for healthcare and so we started small programs you know started a, a basic literacy class opened the doors and you know 100 people showed up the next day so we thought okay right um 
Um, and it turns out that those are obviously the backbone of our program in many ways, which, because it's our daily interaction with those families. I mean, if you're going to do a really complex, you know, to, to use the jargon, kind of community-based integrated development project, that is basically the definition of chaos, right? It's like working with a community of people. It would be true in our own communities where, where you're saying, okay, right, we're going to do everything around us. We're going to make sure that buildings are restored. We're going to make sure that everybody's got water, sanitation, electricity, because nobody did. Make sure everybody's in school. We're going to try to get jobs for everybody, right? I mean, this is like basic regeneration of, of, a, of an area. If you did that anywhere near us uh, in, in any of our communities, it's a big lift and it's very chaotic and there are competing priorities and there are competing priorities for who gets to do what and where you start and everything else. So you better have a pretty close relationship with them. Um, and, you know, this idea of, of community consultation is in no way a sort of formalized process of like meeting regularly in a particular place with a set group of, uh, uh, of representative community members. It's, I, I would say community consultation happens about 15 times a day when you get stopped and, uh, and asked for something. Um, and of course, then you need to figure out who's not asking and you need to seek out their opinion. And that's where I think the primary school and the clinic really help because that's where our primary interaction with mothers and children happen. The clinic is primarily a maternal child health clinic. It has over about 70% you know, women and girls because that, that's uh, mostly what's needed and what we do kind of I can imagine everything happening and I love the description of like you know that it is chaos and there are like multiple opinions and it's exciting but also kind of um, monumental but it's just a testament to everybody's determination that all of you managed to do this. 15 years in, Turquoise Mountain has restored over 150 historic buildings, trained over 6,000 artisans, and treated almost 136,000 patients in their Kabul clinic. They have supported and generated over $15.5 million in sales of traditional crafts to international clients. And Shoshana, who came to Kabul as a volunteer looking for adventure and purpose, is Turquoise Mountain's Chief Executive Officer. Today, in addition to Afghanistan, Turquoise Mountain also has projects in Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. Syria is on the horizon. Shoshana shares a little about how the idea to expand came about. Interestingly, she points out that each locale has its particular focus, but the synergy of working in several countries has worked well for the organization's sales and marketing approach. In the end, any community development project the organization takes on must fulfill Turquoise Mountain's ethos of energy, beauty, and pride. One of the things that I remain very, very conscious of is that if you're going to do one of these things well, it's a, it's a little bit like having a child, and I do have two of them, so I don't say it lightly, but you know, you're, going to, you're going to spend 10, 15, 20 years there, and you're going to raise and spend a lot of money, and you really got to invest in this place because you have to you have to get to know the particulars of, of that place and that government and speak the language and everything else. So I was not looking to expand for the sake of expanding. Um, but uh, I visited Myanmar and um, just saw at that point, um, 2000, I think it must have been 14 or so, um, 
these extraordinary um, buildings in the downtown of Yangon, the former capital, the, this extraordinary built heritage that was crumbling. And you had um, wonderful traditions. I mean, textiles, lacquerware, metalwork, etc. So we thought long and hard about whether we could do anything there and whether we wanted to, to try and uh, decided that we did. And all of these things are um, a combination of my own interest and the interest of our patron. And the Prince of Wales has always had a, a, a close connection to, to Burma. And so we said yes to that one. Um, and then Saudi Arabia was um, a, a a very particular thing, which is that our first very large commission was for a five-star hotel in Mecca. And it was nearly a half a million dollars and it put so many people to work for about six months and built three businesses off of it. And it was the first time we'd sold to a big hotel. Um, and so I thought, okay, right, I gotta do more of that. So I, and it was hard to get into Saudi at that point. You can't just show up on a tourist visa. So um, the British Council brought me and I did a sort of craft tour of Saudi. And I went around and, and actually found all of these wonderful traditions that I didn't know about from sedu weaving to gypsum plaster carving and this extraordinary, uh, very bright, very linear um, art form called Kat art in, um, in Asir province, which is now in the UNESCO uh, protected intangible cultural heritage list. The, the Ministry of, uh, sort of Tourism and Antiquities asked us to come and do a turquoise mountain project there. And I said, well, I'm not really a consultant, so we're not going to do that, but really happy to do a collaboration where we make joint lines of products between my Afghan craftspeople and the Saudi craftspeople. And uh, I will find a market for my Afghan products and we'll work with these Saudi artisans. And there we go. Um, so it was basically a way to find, find a market for Afghan crafts, but actually we love the project in and of itself. And we've ended up working with, you know, nearly a, a thousand, mostly Saudi women um, in mostly rural Saudi Arabia, preserving these traditions and, and bringing them to market. And, and we do also sell products from other countries. I and mean, one of the things that's been interesting is that um, artisans are actually much more likely to get commissions together than they are separately. Because if you're talking about the sort of interior design world, either people who buy for five-star hotels or for, um, private clients, they're, they're making up someone's house. Um, they don't want to go to a million different vendors. They want to go to one place and they want to get their textiles, their decorative items, their metal work, um, all of these things in one place. And so you actually need the weavers from Myanmar uh, to come together with the carpet makers from Afghanistan, the metal workers from Jordan and Syria, um, and the gypsum plaster carvers from Saudi Arabia. So. Jordan and Syria. The Jordan project has become, of course, about preserving the extraordinary traditions of Syria, but also about everybody in Jordan, about traditions uh, from Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, there are Iraqis, Egyptians. Jordan has done this extraordinary thing of hosting so many people. And it means that it is a place where everyone is, is working together. I don't mean in an easy way, but artisans are understandably um, very protective often. They don't want to train people who are outside of their immediate group. But actually we're finding um, with the Syrian masters and some Jordanian masters, they are actually willing to train everyone. I mean, I think they're just wanting to make sure they can keep producing and, and the sort of desperate and instant loss of 
uh, of everything they've done for their entire careers uh, is very raw. And so to be able to teach again, to be able to produce again, um, to be able to, to be put on that pedestal of, of where a master artist is put uh, is just something people want to do. So, so Jordan uh, was originally about Syria, but is now about, uh, about Jordan itself and, and everyone who's there. Um, I think whatever we have done well is, I suppose, back to the original question of uh, the secret to development, uh, energy, beauty, and pride. I, I think the energy bit of it is that when you do complex projects and when you try to bring traditional crafts to luxury high-end international markets, you better have the staying power because you're going to get it wrong about 50 times before you get it right. Beauty is, is, is also about quality. I mean, basically, if you don't do things really, really well, it doesn't work. And of course, that's obviously true with products, but it's really true with the communities with which you work, right? If you don't do a good job, if you do sort of a halfway job, it loses the point entirely because this is about making traditional buildings really beautiful and spectacular and, and making people proud of them because otherwise they're just old. Uh, and pride is just that I, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years and I just enjoy it. And I think it's because the people we work with enjoy it. I mean, I, I feel happy because we make beautiful things and because the people we're working with are, enjoy their jobs and basically has to be a good place to work. So I, I suppose if we stopped doing any of those things, it would probably stop working very quickly. <laughs> So that was great, Joe. Um, I don't know how you felt, but for me, it was really wonderful to hear from Shoshana and to kind of hear the story of this organization that I've been following for, for some time and, you know, who works in, like you said at the beginning, in very difficult places under difficult circumstances and with something that, you know, I feel really great about or, or feel very passionate about was just crafts and preserving it in a way that um, really elevates it. You know, not that I want to draw parallels at all between Turquoise Mountain, which is like at the top of a mountain and we are like at the bottom of a hill. If there were any parallels, it would be in the approaches that she talked about, you know, the energy, the beauty and the pride. And I think that for me, I mean, she didn't say it specifically, but I would say that that's got to be one of the reasons why Turquoise Mountain is successful. Because if you can instill a sense of cultural pride into the craft makers, into the people within those communities about their own cultural heritage, then you're already off to a winning start. Then you can build anything from the ground up, I think. Okay, and that's all from us for this week. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about Turquoise Mountain and where to shop for their products, check out their website. The link is provided in the description of this episode. This podcast is brought to you by OpPopTok, an artisan textile company based in Lomprobang, Laos. Again, the link is in the description of the episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>